All right, today we're going to step out of the study in Luke, actually this whole month, and we're going to be looking at the triumphant entry today, which will be in Mark chapter 11. Next week we're going to be looking at the crucifixion, and the following week being Resurrection Sunday or Easter, we will do the resurrection, and then we'll go through some of the proofs of the resurrection probably the following week. So for this month, we're going to be a little uh, side study. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem and to Bethany and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples and said to them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you enter it, you shall find a colt tied, whereupon never man sat, loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why? Do you this, shall you that the Lord say you that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the, the door without in a place where the two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do you loosening the colt? And they said, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and they sat upon him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strewn them across the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around, about upon all things, and now evening time was come, and he went out into Bethany with the twelve. So we're going to just look at this for one little bit and go, why did Jesus make this entry into Jerusalem, which is called the triumphant in- entry? Uh, and because this is quite an interesting place, because this is one week before Jesus dies. One week. Uh, and then we find, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that happens during this last week. We've talked about this, and I didn't recalculate it, but 25 to 30% of all the Gospels covers the last week of Jesus' life. And you think about all those chapters in there, and it's, most of them are about that one week. He did a lot of things, and he was very openly at this point declaring who he was. And just want to go before this, because I'm going to cover a lot of different scriptures. We're going to bounce around a little bit. I've got them all marked in my Bible so I can go to them very quickly. I will give them to you as we go along. But uh, we're going to kind of lay this into two parts. You know, first, first what we want to look at is Jesus told the disciples where they were going to find a donkey and that somebody might challenge them and he told them exactly what to say. You know, I love it that God already knows the future. All right. He already knew where the donkey was going to be. He knew what the questions were going to be, and he told the disciples how to answer those questions. Do you know how much peace that causes for me, and I hopefully for you? God knows the future. Nothing happens to us that God does not already know is going to happen. I love that. And I've said this before, you'll never hear God saying, well, I did not know that was going to happen. Now, we say that a lot. That is not what I expected to happen. That is not what I thought was going to happen. But God is never caught by surprise. He is never in a place where he goes, well, gee, uh, now now what am I going to do? I didn't know that that was what was going to happen. He already knows what's going to happen. And we also know that it is for good because that's his promise to us. Everything that happens to his children is for good. We may not understand it. We may not see why it's going to be for good. And we may not see until we get to heaven why it was for good. But he has promised that it is for good and nothing is surprising to him. When our whole world falls out and the carpet was pulled out from under us and our whole world falls apart, God says, I already knew that was going to happen and I have you in my hand. I have a plan for all of that. And what do we do? We sometimes get upset with God and you know, get, you know, get angry with God because everything is falling apart. You know, and we've all been there at some point. Some people have had their whole life literally falling apart. 
Some people feel like their whole life has fallen apart and it really wasn't that bad. Some people have had just smaller problems. But you know, those small problems to somebody who wasn't ready is a big problem. Now we may look at it and say, well, what, what was the big problem with that? That was just a small problem. It wasn't a small problem to them, otherwise God would have given them more. God gives us what we can handle and whatever he gives us looks like a big issue to us. Now, and we can't minimize what they're going through just because we look at it and say, oh, <laughs> what a piece of cake, you know, why did that throw you for a loop? It threw them for a loop because it wasn't a simple problem for them. They haven't grown to wherever, wherever you were at in that area. But we need to understand he was omniscient. He knew everything that was coming on. And this is kind of funny because we look at Jesus' last week. And we'll be kind of the theme on this is that Jesus was in control of the entire last week. He was in control when they came to arrest him. He was in control when they put him on the cross. He was in control when he raised, rose from the dead. You know, he was in control of everything and submitted to the Father's will on all the events that happened to him. So we're going to look at this triumphant entry. So we're going to go first. We're going to look at John chapter 2. Go the other way. Verse 1 is where we're starting through 4. And the third day there was a marriage in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, we have no wine. And he said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. And I'm going to stop there. If you know the story, Jesus goes ahead and, and makes wine for the, for the wedding feast. And it was the best wine that had ever been tasted. But I wanted to really point this. My hour has not yet come. Jesus' whole time was for one period of time in his life. He came to this world to live as a man, but to die on the cross. That was his whole intent. Everything else, the whole 34 years up until that point was just to get to the cross as a man. His hour was to die. He was born with the purpose that he was going to die on the cross. And that was his hour. And all through the scriptures, he was saying, it is not my time. And we're not going to read every single time that he said that, but I just want to read a couple of those. In uh, John chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus was in the temple, he taught, saying, you know me, and you know whence I am, and, you, and I am come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, and I am from him, and he hath sent me. And they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. They wanted to kill him. Because what did he just say? Basically, I and God are the same. <laughs> you know, there are many people that you'll hear tell you that Jesus never said, I am God. There are plenty of opportunities where they were true. He did not say, I am God. But before, you know, this one says, you know, the God and I, the Father and I are one. That was saying, I'm God. There's another instance where he said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him because what was he saying? I'm omniscience. I, was, I, I am was the name of God. And he goes, before Abraham was, I am. He was telling them, I'm God. And if you're from the Jewish perspective, he was saying, I am God. And they wanted to kill him. So this was a big deal, but it wasn't his time. Do you realize that even for us, if it's not your time to die, it doesn't matter who wants to kill you. It doesn't matter what they want to do to you. If it's not your time appointed by God to die, you are not going to die. Does that give you a little bit of comfort? You know, no matter what you're doing, if you're serving God and you're in a place where he wants you to be, and even if you're in a place where he doesn't want you to be, if you're not your time to die you're not going to die until it is your appointed time by God. Now, this is kind of a funny, funny thing to think about. How many times have you ever heard somebody give a testimony about how many times they tried to commit suicide before they, before they became a Christian? And they said, I don't know why, but every one of them failed. 
it was not their time. Now, I'm not going to tell you to go out and try to commit suicide. No, I'm not going to go that far. But, but the point is, you are protected and safe until it is your time to die. Now, the flip side of that is, when it is your time to die, it doesn't matter what you do to try to protect yourself. Wrap yourself up in a bubble suit and stay at home and try to hide from everybody else. It won't matter. When it is your time, you won't be able to stop it. So this is very important for us. Jesus said it was not his hour. His hour had not come. They wanted him dead. Satan wanted him dead before the cross and tried to kill him on several occasions because if he went to the cross, he died for the sins of the world. So he tried to get him dead before that event. And we see this over and over again. And again, we're not trying to read every single one that's out there. In Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, a great multitude followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be you clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See, you tell no man, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer a gift to Moses, as Mo that Moses commanded, for the testimony unto them. So here he doesn't say, it's not my time, but he says, don't tell anybody. What's he saying? It's not my time. Do not proclaim who I am. Jesus spent four years of his life, ministry life, telling people, don't tell others what's going on. Now what happened, of course, if you tell somebody not to tell something, what's the first thing that they do? They go tell somebody. And then that person, of course, tells somebody. And before long, everybody knows. And Jesus kept telling, in Matthew especially, don't tell anybody. And the time when, the, when he healed the man with, with the demons, a legion of demons, and he says, and the demon said, what have we to do with you, son of God, the Christ, the son of God? And he says, be silent. It is not time to speak. It is not time. Jesus spent most of his time trying to not show who he was while he was ministering to people. And this is kind of an interesting thing. How many times do we try to do things and how many people do you know that want glory for everything they do? You know, I did this, I did this, I did this. And people are always trying to make themselves look really good. Jesus spends four years trying to not draw attention to the fact that he is the Son of God. And he keeps telling them over and over, don't share this, don't go out. Why? One of the things, the problem that they had were that people were looking for a Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one, that is the, what Christ means. You know, did you all realize, and I'm sure you do because I've mentioned this before, that Jesus' last name is not Christ. Christ is his title. He is the anointed one. He is, that is his title. It's not his name. It would be just like somebody having doctor in front of it. So Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. That was his title for what it was. He was not known by that title during his lifetime. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that we think about this because one of the problems that the Jewish leaders had with Jesus is that they thought that he came from Nazareth. And they were looking at it and saying, well, you know, he's doing things. It looks like he might be the Messiah, but he's from Nazareth and not from Bethlehem. They never looked enough into his history to know that he was actually from Bethlehem. And if they had, the Jewish leaders might have had a different opinion of him. They still would have been jealous of him. But at least if they had known that he was from Bethlehem of the line of David, they would have had a different attitude about him. But because he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, as Nathaniel said, what good comes from Nazareth? Nazareth was the, you know, the worst neighborhood that you could possibly come from. Uh, you know, we don't really have any really, really bad neighborhoods in in this area, but you know, if you're from Kingman, you think of Birdland, where all the all the bad stuff happens in Birdland, or the across the tracks in downtown. You know, I don't think we have anything in Chloride that I can say that of, but uh, but you know, different places, and they're going Nazareth. No, nothing good can come from Nazareth. The the, the Messiah is definitely not coming from Nazareth. 
but they never looked into his history. They never looked into who he was. So what is this hour that Jesus is, is preparing for is the next question because we know, because we know the, the story, that his hour was going to be the cross. Everything in Jesus' life leads to the cross. And the funny thing is about this, he, kept tell, he keeps telling the disciples over and over again, I'm going to die especially his last year. His last year, he keeps telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and the closer he gets to the cross, the more he's telling them that he's going to die. But he also says, I'm also going to rise again. And these poor disciples are going, you're the Messiah. Now, let's lay the foundation of what does a Jewish person believe about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be the king that rules over Israel, that delivers them from all of their enemies, and makes the world, brings the world under control of Israel. That's a pretty big, uh, big uh, goal that they're going to do. And when, during Jesus' day, who's the ruler over Israel? The Roman Empire. Now they hated being under the Roman Empire. They were looking forward to a Messiah. Before Jesus came, there were false messiahs all over the place. They'd come up, raise up an army, and get beat. And then bad things would happen to Israel because their false messiah had come in and raised up. The disciples are saying, you know, for four years they're walking with Jesus saying, we're following the Messiah and every moment they're waiting for the day that he is going to raise an army and deliver Israel from the Roman Empire. That was what they were expecting. The Jews to this day are expecting a Messiah to come to deliver them and make them the nation in the center of everything. Which is why during the tribulation period, they will fall for the Antichrist, bringing them a peace agreement and making them the center of attention and being, bringing peace to them like they've never had in many, many years. And he will look like their Messiah. And he will trick them into thinking that he's the Messiah until the three and a half year mark, which is not our message tonight. but, uh, But... He will fall. So Jesus is sitting there and it says, it's not my time to be known. Because there was another instance where he, made a, made a, he healed a person and they decided we're going to make him king. Whether he wants to be or not, he is going to be our king. We're, we've got the Messiah here. We're going to make him king. And if you read that verse, he passed through the crowd because it wasn't his time and he just kind of walked, walked out of the crowd. I don't know how he did that. That had to be supernatural. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk against a crowd and he just disappeared and he's the center of attention of the crowd. And he just walked through the crowd. <laughs> had to be supernatural. And he left the crowd because it was not his time. It was not the hour for this to happen. And it's not his hour to be the ruler of Israel through any of the New Testament events in the Gospels. There's coming a time at the end of the tribulation that he will return with his bride, us, the church, and he will rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years as the king. And he will rule the world with a perfect rule. But that, it was, that is even in the future. His hour during his lifetime was to go to the cross. In Matthew 26, verse 45, and he came to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane and said unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Do you remember the story of Gethsemane? Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray. He's only hours away from the cross. You know, he's going to be on the cross the next morning. He's going to go through the illegal midnight trial and be beat and scourged, and all the things that go on in, in his case. So he goes to pray. And while he's praying, the disciples keep falling asleep. Well, kind of makes sense. It's, it's, it's dark. It's the middle of the night. And it makes sense that they fell asleep. And he's praying before the Father. And he sees the disciples and says, I'll just keep sleeping now. It's, t- it's, it's time. The hour is all at hand. Jesus knew that it was coming. He knew that it was going to be hard for him as he went to the cross, as he took the beatings, which we'll talk about next week. In John 
chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in this world, he loved them unto the end. So in chapter 13, he's getting ready for the Passover. The Passover is the meal that he had right before Gethsemane. It's six days after, uh, five days after the triumphant entry. He's at the, with the disciples having a meal with them, and he's going to be arrested that night. And he tells the disciples, this is where we get the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. He gives them a different meaning. Jesus is going to die on the cross as the Passover lamb for the world, the one that delivers from death. And he tells them, the hour is almost at hand. You know, he's finally telling people, it's, it's coming, it's coming. My hour is here. The entirety of Jesus's life had been leading up to that point. He knew. You know, I don't know how many of you, and I thought about this, would I like to know that what, what moment I was going to die? And I don't think I would. Jesus spent his entire life knowing that he was going to die as the Passover lamb and knowing that he was going to die and knowing how he was going to die on a cross and knowing that he was going to go through a brutal beating before the cross to take all the punishment of this world. His hour was not yet come that he said the hour is close. So why did he go into the triumphant entry? was basically to announce his position. He went in and what did they cry out? Hosanna. Now, I'm sure everybody in this room knows their Hebrew well enough to know what Hosanna means. Hosanna means save now we pray. And they were calling out Hosanna, Hosanna. And they were laying out their garments and branches before him he was riding on a donkey. And all these things have some very significant points. And we're going to talk a little bit about this in Zachari uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice gen greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey upon a colt, the foal of, foal of a donkey. So Jesus was fulfilling a scripture. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey as their king. And you're going, well, that's pretty strange, isn't it? Shouldn't he ride on a horse? Well, the history and the customs of this says that if he rode on a horse... He was coming in as a conqueror. He was coming in as the mighty conqueror. If he came in on a donkey, he was coming in peace. Jesus was basically saying, I'm coming in peace. I'm not here to be a conqueror. Now in Revelation, when Jesus returns the next time, he will be on a white horse. He is coming back as a conqueror to conquer the entire world. This one, he came back as a gentle, loving king, the lamb. Jesus, all through the New Testament, is in the picture of a lamb, meek and gentle. He has come to be the Passover lamb. He has come to die for the sins of the world. When he comes back the next time, he's coming back as the lion of Judah, the king, the ruler, and he's going to conquer the world and say, the world is now mine. Or he's taking back the world. It's already his, but he's taking back possession of it. Because Satan was given possession of this world when Adam and Eve sinned, because Adam and Eve were given possession of this world. And when they sinned, Satan took possession of this world. Remember, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, and the last temptation was, if you will just bow my knees, bow your knee to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus' answer wasn't to him, they're not yours to give me. Because you know, he could have said that, you know, they're already mine anyway, so you can't give them to me. But he did have the title possession of them because of what Adam and Eve did. So he had the right to be give, given the title and possession 
back. Now Satan is a liar. He would not have followed through with his deal. And Jesus knew that, but he also wasn't tempted. And what was Satan saying? I'm going to give you a shortcut. You know, you don't have to go to the cross to get all the world. You don't have to go to the cross to die and get all the world back. I'll give it to you right now. And Jesus said, I'm not going to take the easy way out. How many times do we try to take the easy way out of a problem? Or what looks like the easy way out of a problem? Uh, how many times have you gone, and I know I've done this plenty of times, you take the, what looks like the easy way and find out it ran to a cliff <laughs> or all kinds of trouble <laughs> or a dead end and you had to go back to start all over again and do it the right way? We as human beings oftentimes are tempted to take what looks like the easy way out, to compromise just a little bit because it seems like the way out. You know, well, you know, God, if I, just, if I told the truth about that situation, they would have thought that I was a, a tattletale and they would have made life miserable for me. Or I would have gotten in trouble if I told the truth. And God said, well, didn't you get into trouble anyway? Now, how many times do we tell our kids you were better off telling the truth because now you're in trouble for lying and doing what was wrong? And how many times do we try to do the same thing to God? Uh, well, God, I know you know everything, but <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to hide what I did. I'm going to try to get around what, you, what you're saying. Jesus rode in in a fulfillment of the, of the prophecy of the Messiah. He rides into Jerusalem to be declared to be king. And if you read, if you read the rest of that triumphant entry the, in, in the other Gospels, the scribes and Pharisees get very, very irritated about this. Why? Because they know this is a Zechariah 9-9 prophecy, and the people are worshiping a king, the Messiah, and they're crying, Hosanna, save now, we pray, and they're going, uh, no, 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 this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's not the Messiah. Don't, don't be fools. And they're going, tell them to quit saying these things. And I didn't read the particular one, but I love it in the one place where Jesus said, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. What was he telling those leaders? Hey, uh, uh, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be worshipped whether, whether these people do it or nature does it. I would love to have seen that, the rocks crying out. But, but uh, God could have made it happen. He could have easily have made that happen. So we see here this prophecy being fulfilled in Isaiah 62. Verses 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates, prepare you the way, O people. Cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones. Lift up the standards for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say you to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call him the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out a city not forsaken. He's coming in as the Messiah. You are not forsaken. This is also going to be fulfilled in the, in the last time he returns. But it's going to say, you are not forsaken. You are the city that God rules in. Salvation, your salvation comes. Now they did not recognize that the salvation was coming. They did not recognize that God was talking about spiritual salvation with this entry. They did not recognize, and to this day, most Jews do not recognize that Jesus came to die for them first and then will come back to reign in the kingdom forever. They did not recognize this. They have trouble with this. They ignore Isaiah 53. They ignore anything that talks about the Messiah dying. Just as the disciples did. Now, I find it so amazing that Jesus kept telling the disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. And, they, and what did they hear? Nothing. They never understood until afterwards when they wrote up all that Jesus said. And I don't feel too bad for him because how many times do we not listen to God when he speaks to us? We read it in the scriptures. We get taught it. We hear, hear pastors and teachers teach it. Uh, we read it in the scriptures and we totally ignore it until after things happen. And then we go, oh, you know what? God has really been trying to teach me this last month 
to prepare me for what I just went through, and I ignored him. I've done it plenty of time. Don't, don't feel bad if you've done it. I've done it lots of times. <laughs> but we all do it. The disciples did it. Jesus couldn't have been any more clear. I'm going to go, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back in three days. And they just never understood. Matter of fact, after he dies, where do we find them? In an upper room hiding. Fearing that they are going to be arrested and put on crosses too for following that lunatic that just got killed. For three days, they're hiding out in fear. And then they get the report. He is no longer in that grave. And even then, they don't believe it. Even though he's told them over and over again he was going to rise again, and now he's done it, and they don't believe it, they have to go and see for themselves that he's not there, and they still don't believe it. I'm stealing too much from the last, the third message, but, but just think about that. But haven't we all been someplace like that in our life? Where Jesus says, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and then it happens, and we're going like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Well, why didn't you? God told you it was going to come. And yet, too many times we will do just that and say, well, didn't, didn't see it coming, didn't know. And then the last one I want to look at is in 2 Kings chapter 9, starting at verse 12. This isn't actually about Jesus, but we're going to look at a tradition that happened. Uh, 2 Kings 9, chapter, tw uh, chapter 9, verse 12. And they said, it is false. If it is false, tell us. And he said to them this, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And they hastened and took every man his garment and sat it under him at the top of the stairs and blew trumpets and saying, Jehu is king. What did they do? They laid garments down before him. And another in, in Chronicles, it tells us they laid palm branches bound before him. What was this? It was the natural custom of them to say, this is the king. This is the king who we're following. So what's Jesus writing into? The, into? They're throwing garments on. They're putting their garments on the, on, the, on the donkey. They're putting things down in front of him and saying, here comes the king. Here comes the king. The Jewish leaders knew what was going on. Now, part of their actions with they were jealous because if a king shows up, they don't have as much power as, they know, as they've been having. They also have a little bit of fear because if Pilate hears this thing going on, Pilate might just know what's going on. He might know the customs and realize that he, somebody is announcing himself to be king. Now, remember, they're under Roman rule. If Pilate gets a little bit afraid of somebody coming up to king, what is going to happen? They could have the military activated and they could have a slaughter in Jerusalem. And this has been one of the big problems in here. All of a sudden, all of this thing, and you know, we think of it, well, he just rides in. It's a wonderful thing. The panic at the political level is great. You know, we don't understand it. I mean, you know, we can kind of look at January 6th and with the panic that people had, you know, when the capital, people occupied the capital, and how much panic happened. Same type of thing here. A man is riding into Jerusalem being declared to be king by the people. And we don't often think about it, but the people that rule over you only rule because the people under them allow it or are forced to, one or the other. Because you can be forced to allow it if you have enough, enough power and strength. But if they want to make things difficult for you, if you don't have the people on your side, it's very difficult. So we have the Jewish leaders losing their prestige. The possibility of Pilate looking in and saying, okay, what is this little bit of a revolution going on? Who is this person coming up being declared king? Because he's the ruler of, of Jerusalem, the military ruler. So we have a potential problem here. Why did Jesus not want it out that he was Messiah before all of this? For all of these reasons. It would mean political chaos. He would not have been able to do ministry the way he was trying to do it. So he says, my time has not come. Now he moves forward and he announces, I am the Messiah. Not the Messiah you're expecting, but I am the Messiah. 
And for one week, he is going to start doing the work of the Messiah, and he's going to start stirring up the agitation by doing the things that would cause problems. He is going to be out there publicly announcing that I am God, drawing attention to the Jewish people, saying, okay, well, you think you're God, we're going, to, we're going to take care of you. Getting a little bit of Pilate's attention. When they brought him before Pilate, Pilate, this was not the first time that week that Pilate heard, had heard about Jesus. He has come in in a mighty triumph. You do not have a big parade going on in a city without people becoming aware of it. And this wasn't necessarily a plan by anybody but Jesus, but people are worshiping Jesus. And he is letting this go. And all this next week, he's going to be going in. Because at the end of this verse that we just read in, in Mark, it said that he entered into the temple. And it was really simple. He looked around and saw. Now, this one really strikes me as a manager. Because as I was a troubleshooting manager for many, many years and one of the first things I would do in a, in a restaurant when I was put in charge of checking what was going on, my first day, I looked around. And unless I saw something really, really, really bad out of shape, I made no changes the first day. But I'm looking around and saying, okay, this has to change, this has to change, this has to change, this has to change. And the second day <laughs> was the day I came in to change things. And if you finish, if you keep going into Mark, the next thing you're going to see is Jesus goes into the temple and for the second time he drives the money changers and the, and the salesmen out of the temple and says, this is my father's house, it's a house of prayer, not a, not a house of thieves. And chases out all the people doing marketing in the temple. And he chases them out and then he's going to over and over again challenge the status quo and say, hey, you know, you guys just recognized me as Messiah and King I'm going to make some changes. And these changes, of course, go over real well with the status quo. If you've ever tried to make changes, they never go over well. If you've been the one that had to change, you don't like change. We as humans don't like change. Uh, and it's kind of funny because I'm dealing with a lot of that where I work right now. Some people don't like some changes going on. And I've had to tell many of them, change happens. You've got to get over it and just adapt with the changes. You know. Our whole world always changes. God is changing us. Now, in our case, he's changing us, as we're told in Corinthians, from glory to glory, he's changing me. He's changing us to greater glory and greater relationship with him when we allow him to change us. Now, we can either do that the easy way and surrender to him and let him come in with a surgeon's knife and cut it out nice and clean, or we can fight and argue with him and have a nice, hard, ragged cutting away of it because he's going to win. You know, the question is, do you want it to be nice and neat and clean or do you want to have it be more brutal? brutal? Uh, unfortunately, I've been very stubborn most of my life and many of my changes have been brutal. I'm learning. I'm learning to surrender better. Uh, I'm still not there yet. <laughs> and none of us in this room are there completely. Hopefully we get better and better at it and say, God, I'm not going to fight as long. I'm not going to argue as long. I'm going to release and surrender to you. So here we have all of these things coming in. Jesus does this entry into Jerusalem because he says, it's now time for my hour to be revealed. I'm getting ready to go to that cross and I'm not hiding anymore. Before, he wasn't totally hiding, but he was spent the first two years up in the northern part of the Israel. This last year, he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, you know, with all kinds of things going on. Just a few weeks before that, he had healed, uh, healed, yeah, well, he had healed, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a big, powerful event. And the Jews were not happy with that. And you're going to read that not only did they want to kill Jesus... They wanted to re-kill Lazarus because he had been raised from the dead. Now, I don't know why they would blame Lazarus being raised from the dead, but you know, he was a testimony of the power that Jesus represented. And how many times do they go after, people go after us because we're Christians? We represent Christ, so they will go after us. 
And it's really interesting sometimes because I've had people who are barely walking with God get attacked because, just because they're a Christian. And they've never said much of anything. But just because they are God's child, they get attacked. What am I saying? Go out and be very bold for Christ because you're going to be attacked one way or the other. Unless you totally hide your, your light completely. And that would mean not go to church, not read your Bible, not tell anybody that you're a Christian. And I've had people, well, nobody looks at me. I'm going, well, if you've told anybody that you're a Christian, you go to church, people are looking at you. They want to know, are you real? Now, unfortunately, their opinion of Christians is a little bit skewed. They expect us to be perfect, and none of us are going to be perfect. But do we generally represent Christ in our actions? Do we show people love and kindness and mercy and grace? Or are we just like the rest of the world and critical and, and putting people down? Hopefully we're more like Jesus than not like Jesus. But it takes a lot. It takes, number one, surrendering to him and letting him live through us. But if you are somebody that people know are a Christian, people are watching you. Whether you know it or not, people are watching you and saying, is that person really a Christian? They're looking for a reason to follow God. Now, it's kind of funny because they'll all tell you, we're not, I don't want anything to do with God. But usually it's because, unfortunately, uh, they say that people don't know God for two, uh, or reject God for two reasons. Either they don't know a Christian, or they do know a Christian that's the wrong Christian. And they look at him and say, well, if that's what Christians are, I don't want anything to do with it. We don't want that to be our testimony before people. We want to be somebody, when they look at us and saying, they have something I want. Don't really know what it is, but they seem to be at peace. They seem to be kind. They seem to be loving. And I love it when people will say, well, why do you smile all the time? Why are you happy all the time? Well, I don't think I'm happy all the time, but it, I know I'm happier than most people. And I love it when people do that, especially at the prison, because all of a sudden they open the door that I can really tell them the full gospel message, because they open the door. They want to know why I'm happy. And I can tell them a full-blown gospel message and not get in trouble because they asked. <laughs> they asked. They didn't want to have the question. They should not have asked. <laughs> they didn't want the answer. They should not have asked. So where are we with God? He is declaring himself, I am the Messiah. Is he your Messiah? Have you surrendered to him to make him your God, your, your king? And I know the testimony of just about everybody in this room says that they're saved and I'm going to have to buy that. That's fine. But have you made him actually your king and your leader? Now, it is one thing just to get saved and accept salvation and go to heaven. But he also then wants to say, I am Lord. I am master. Are we submitted to him to do whatever else he asks us to do? That's a hard step especially for us Americans. We in America don't like to submit to anybody because we have this attitude, if we don't like our leaders, we'll just vote them out of office the next opportunity we get, and I don't have to pay attention to them. I can say what I want about them, I can do what I want about you know, and I can ignore them because they're going to be gone in, in two, four, or six years, hopefully. Uh, but that is not the way God is. He says, I am Lord. I am King. You do not get to vote him out of office. And even if you tried, it wouldn't work because he's going to ignore whatever votes that we have because he is still sovereign. <laughs> he is still ruler. And once we submit ourselves to be his child, be a part of his kingdom, we are supposed to be submitted to him to let him change our life. And all we have to do is surrender to him for that change to happen. And I'm going to encourage each one of us, surrender to God and see what God has got in store for you. The one promise I can absolutely make is that all things will work together for good. And the only problem is it doesn't say for my good. <laughs> and I love to do it because most people, and even I made that mistake when I was younger, I kept adding my in front of that good. It doesn't say it's for my good. It says it is for good. Now ultimately when I get to heaven, I will be rewarded for all the things that, he went, that I went through. 
But on earth, it is for God's good. Whatever it is that he has determined to be for good. And we need to be able to understand that there are going to be many things coming into our life that we're going to go, God, I don't know how this is for good. And I've told everybody, that's been my prayer many times. God, I don't see how this can be good. But you have promised it's for good, so I'm going to hold on to your promise. And I'm going to encourage you to really grab hold of that type of verse. When you're, if you're going through things right now, grab hold of that verse. If you're his child, he has everything for good. If you're not going anything, through anything at this moment, hold on to that verse because you will be. Real simple. You're either going through something now or you will be going through something in it very shortly. That's just the way this life is. I want to encourage you, grab hold of that verse. It is one of my favorite verses. For all things work together for good for those that love God or are called according to his purpose. If you're his child, you're, you're, love, you're loved of God and you're called according to his purpose. So all things, not some things, not most things, not many things, all things work together for good. Now again, many times I have no clue how some of the things have worked together for good. All I know is that God said they will. And I hold on to his truth. Because one thing I know about God is he has never lied. He does not lie now. And he will not lie in the future. He is always telling the truth. So if he says that all things work together for good, I'm going to hold on to that for everything I've got. Even if my whole world is upside down and the rug's been pulled out from under, I'm being stepped on by everybody. <laughs> and nothing is going right in my life, I'm going to hold on to that verse and say, God, I don't understand any of this, but you say it's going to be for good. I'm going to hold on. Learn to hold on to that verse. Now, I've also learned one very important lesson when I was younger. If somebody doesn't believe that verse to begin with, don't tell them when they're in the middle of their trial that God, all things work together for good because they're going to be, want to take your head off. You either believe it going into it, or it's not going to be a comfort. For me, I totally believe that verse is when I go through anything, it is the verse I go to. Going, God, I don't understand why you're allowing all this stuff to happen, but you say all things work together for good, and I'm just going to trust that verse. Because you've never lied, you never will lie, so I don't know how it's going to be, but I'm going to hold on to it. You've got a plan. You know what's going on. And I love that. That is my comfort. All, God's got a plan that all things will work together for good, and he knows the beginning from the end. He knew the beginning from the end before the beginning, which is hard to understand. Now, before he even started time, he knew what was going to happen. Before he created us, he knew what was going to happen. And that is hard, that's hard to imagine. You know, Jesus and, the, and uh, the Father and the Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create man. Uh, by the way, uh, Jesus, they're going to sin. Will you die for them? And he said, yes. Now, why he created us knowing that we were going to sin and knowing that Jesus would have to die, I have no idea. I would have said, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's, let's come up with some other idea. But that wasn't what they did. They already knew what was going to happen before it happened. Before they created this world, they knew what was going to happen. They know what's going to happen tomorrow, next day, a month from now, a year from now, seven years from now, a thousand years from now. I won't go past a thousand years because that's about the most, I, well, 1,700 years is about all I can go to because I know that that's what the future is for this world at the max or the minimum. And that was if the rapture happened now. <laughs> but he already knows, and he knows out into eternity. He already knows everything that's going to happen in eternity. That's a lot of knowing. He will never be surprised. He is the only one that can say all things work together for good because he already knows what the plan is and how it's going to work together for good. Do you have the ability to trust a God with that much knowledge? No matter what he lets come your way. I hope so. But that really is our challenge because if we do not believe it, then we make all kinds of accusations. God, you just kind of lost control here. And I don't know about you, there's been times when I momentarily think, God, you've totally lost control. 
Nothing seems to be, and then I'm, then I'm reminded, oh, no, you know everything, you're in control. You know, but we as human beings, I've even heard people go, I think God's totally lost it. How could God you know, be in control of all of this mess? He is. Many times that mess is used to bring people to God. Sometimes it's used, you know, and this may be what you're going through. Maybe you're just coming through a really hard time so that you can stay strong with God for people to look and say, they have a strength that I don't have. And you're going through a hard time may bring somebody to God. Is it worth going through a hard time if somebody comes to God? I think so. You know, is it worth me going through what seems like hell if somebody else can get saved? Jesus thought so. He went to the cross so the world could get saved. That is a quite an accomplishment. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, help us to understand who you are, how much you love us. Lord, we ask that you will guide each one of us to submit in a deeper way. No matter where we are right now, Lord, we ask that you will get us to submit into a deeper relationship with you, a closer relationship with you, a more trusting relationship with you. If we're at the very beginning, it'll be easy. If we're deeper into that, then, Lord, you take us to a deeper relationship with you so that we can take that trust. And we just thank you that you are the one that calls us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.